Hello and welcome to this episode of the FT Advisor in Focus podcast, where we will be discussing the year ahead for investments. 2023 was a turbulent year, marked by high volatility and uncertainty in both equity and bond markets. And while it is difficult to forecast what 2024 will look like, we are speaking to three fund managers about their projections. We are joined today by Matthew Rees, Head of Active Bond Strategies and Manager of the LNG Strategic Bond Fund, Louise Kernuan, Head of Global Equity Opportunities and Co-Manager of Newton Investment Management's Global Equity Strategies, and Jamie Niven, Senior Portfolio Manager at Candrium Bonds Total Return. Hi all, thanks for being here today. Jamie, the final quarter of 2023 was um, marked by investors believing rates had peaked and so provoked a rally in its risk assets. Now looking to a year ahead, what's your view on the economy and the outlook for medium and longer term bonds? Yeah, I think 2023, um, we can characterize as trading between two different scenarios, those being a soft landing and a higher for longer environment. And I think particularly the second half of the year, we saw in Q3 bonds sell off and that higher for longer environment being priced. And then in Q4, we saw the, the soft landing being priced. I think for 2024, it's more of a, a conversation and, and probably trades between soft landing and hard landing. So whereas last year the two environments were almost polar opposites for bonds, this year's hard and soft landing, both are quite positive for bonds. So for 2024, we're, we're relatively positive. How that translates into um, the economy, I think we're very much of the view that disinflation will continue. We think actually there's more downside risk in inflation than, than upside risk. So that will feed into that conversation. Um, and I think... As I say, for, for 2024, the debate is whether central banks have left policy too restrictive for too long, which could cause uh, more of a, a hard landing. I think in, in, in our base case, it's still a soft landing, but um, there is that risk scenario. So I think we need to assess how quickly central banks are going to uh, ease rates. They, they almost certainly are going to ease rates and, and cut this year. Potentially in the short term, markets have got a bit ahead of themselves in terms of the timing of the first cut. But in terms of the number of cuts or the, the number of basis points of cuts for 2024, I think it's fairly re reasonably priced right now. So yeah, that's that's a kind of overall view for 2024. I think you asked about longer term as well. And I think longer term, there's an argument for, for higher rates than we've had certainly in the past decade. Mm -hmm. Factors such as deglobalization, decarbonization, retirement of the baby boomers, uh, end of consumer deleveraging post 2008, all point to, to higher neutral rate over the longer term. So I think that while 2024, we could see quite a positive year for bonds, uh, that doesn't necessarily we're going to see, mean that we're going to see a multi-year rally like we've maybe seen in, in the mm -hmm. past decade. Um, what about you, Matthew? Uh, to what extent do you agree with um, what Jamie has said and what kind of 2024 have you prepared for? Yeah, it's, I, I agree with quite a lot of it. I think the one thing that I think is difficult is the market is pricing in, particularly in the US, pretty immaculate kind of disinflation. Um, and very, very high, you know, rate cuts of 1.5% by the end of the year. European and the UK rate cuts are about 1.2%, 1.3%, driven by disinflation, but also weak economies as well. That is quite aggressive if we don't have disinflation. And I think the, the mantra that we have 
in our team and in our rates inflation team is it's very difficult to forecast inflation. Everybody's forecasting inflation is frankly wrong and rubbish. So we don't put too much um, kind of emphasis on the ability to accurately forecast that. Mm-hmm. And that, so therefore, that leads to some asymmetries in the markets, that there's a pretty narrow path of, for the US, a soft landing and big disinflation. And in the UK and Europe, that there isn't actually a, you know, a hard landing um, accompanied with that you know, disinflation as well. So as a result, when we think about 2024, you have to cope with that asymmetry. How do you do that? You have to be very nimble. Um, That's very important to have the kind of lots of levers you can pull to take risk. And we look very fundamentally at kind of where valuation is in credit and also in rates. And over a long period of time, you know, US credit is not pricing in that asymmetry. Um, It is very, very tight. It's at about the 10th percentile of spreads over a 16, 17-year basis. Whereas in Europe, European spreads are pricing in some of the recession, you know, probabilities that are out there. So we find that quite interesting. And emerging markets also, we think there is some value in emerging markets, where at least pricing in some of the big challenges that some emerging markets have. Emerging markets are at about the 40th percentile. US high yield is at the 20th percentile. US high yield, you know, has rallied very strongly. Um, it's something we missed last year. We didn't have enough exposure. But now it's pretty tight, given the the uncertainties over really what happens with the economy. Mm-hmm. And do you think the policymakers are proactive enough in addressing any possible accidents? The US, yes. The US has been incredibly quick. Um, over the last two crises we've had, so the, the US banking crisis and then COVID, have coming out very quickly with measures to calm markets. Um, so the term, term funding facility that they put in place in the US, they're going to unwind it over the next few months because it, it did its job very, very well. So the, the end of QT, which they're signalling, is because reserve scarcity um, is starting to come in. Um, that could have some impacts in the money markets. And I, I would expect the Fed actually to be pretty quick. The UK and Europe have generally been a bit slower to react, but they do react if, if there is a really unexpected market event. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, Luis, let's look at equities in the current environment. Now, last year, a small group of growth stocks, the seven big tech stocks, or Magnificent Seven, as they are sometimes called, and were leading out performance a year before they were lagging. Uh, will market performance be driven by just a handful of companies this year, do you think? Well, it's actually one of the most topical questions at the moment for any global manager or US manager as well. Just when you look at the scale of the performance of these stocks in the last year and the size of these companies is now quite astonishing. I've been seeing uh, statistics come through in terms of the market cap of Apple is very similar now to the market cap of the Russell 2000. That's 2000 companies. So it's really quite incredible how well these stocks have done and how big they are. So it really does beg the question absolutely as to what next. There are different competing forces here. So on the one hand, on the scale argument, well, if you were going to use that for the previous years, you would say that they were going to go down. So I think you maybe put that to side because just because they're big doesn't mean they can't get bigger. Also, if bond yields fall this year, that will be supportive because these stocks do have longer than average uh, duration of earnings. That will be supportive. Uh, and if we look at what's driven these stocks in the last year, it's been AI, and we're still at the infancy of that. So if we see AI really develop, then that will be a material driver for these stocks continued into the future. So there is definitely a scenario where these stocks can continue to perform. The other side of that is, well, I think it's 
probably fairly clear to say that we're unlikely to see returns as strong as what we saw last year. We're seeing increased noise about regulation on these stocks. It could be the case that AI doesn't deliver. You know, expectations are quite high. And as I said, we're still in the infancy. We just don't know how that could develop and it could end up being a non-event. And then also there's uh, geopolitical tensions with US and China that could interfere as well. So our approach is really looking at them on a stock-by-stock basis. We own some of them, but not others of them. Uh, And it's really looking at the fundamentals in terms of what we think will drive the earnings upgrades from here and the valuations. We remain overweight them as a group. And we own, as I said, we own some rather than others. So, for example, Microsoft, I think, is probably one of the more clearer ones in terms of uh, how AI can positively drive earnings there. And we think the valuation can be justified, whereas there are others which potentially are uh, a bit more challenged in the outlook. So to summarise, I would say it will be a more balanced year for the Magnificent Seven. I don't expect it to be such a significant driver of the markets. And I think investors will, rather than just riding the wave of them, will have to be a bit more discriminate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And obviously inflation has an impact on equity stocks as well. It's expected to soften this year, though there's no guarantee. What impact do you expect inflation will have on returns across equity markets? And what's your thinking about soft versus hard lending? Yeah, so I think as we come into the year, the scenario of the soft landing seems to be one which there is a high chance of. But I think we just also have to be prepared for the fact that for all the hard landings that there have been, they've all looked like soft landings until they haven't been. Uh, And when we look at previous rate cycles, at the point where rates come down, there does often have recessions that coincide with that. So I think we just have to be really mindful of just the different scenarios that can play out. And our base case is that economies hold up relatively well. But I think it pays to hold relatively resilient stocks through this period, just in case that we do see that the economic slowdown is worse than expected. And I think invariably we're going or inevitably we're going to see some data points during this period that will spook the market. And so I think, yeah, just investing in the stocks which have resilience, I think, is probably a good strategy in this period. Mm -hmm. Okay. now, geopolitically, you've already alluded to it. We continue to face uncertainty. We've got two major wars um, in Europe and in the Middle East and obviously tensions elsewhere. This is a question to all of you. Will higher volatility mean investors will look for safer assets this year or for products offering an income to keep afloat during uncertain times? Let's start with you, Matthew. People are getting a little bit more used to volatility. And also uh, there's a massive recency bias when people get concerned by headlines, etc. But there has been a lot of volatility for quite a long period of time, um, you know, even pre-COVID. So there's an element of people getting used to it. But you do, when you actually look at the IA sector flows, the flows are showing that UK retail money is going towards things that are a bit more dependable. And also there's yield. So the, the number one sector inflows was in short-term money markets because you could get five-ish percent for basically taking no risk and having seen what's happened over the last few years, people definitely were attracted to that. And I can see that carrying on. And that's obviously we're bond guys. We'll always talk up our asset class, but there is definitely big flows coming into fixed income because that yield and some safety therein um, is attractive. But I, I sometimes think that we worry too much about volatility. Both the market volatility has gone down massively. So the, the US S&P equity volatility is actually near its all-time lows. Even rate volatility is going down quite a lot. So the market volatility actually is much, much lower than you'd think of just by reading the headlines. Mm-hmm. 
I actually see volatility as a positive, particularly for active managers. I mean, if you go back to the, the pre-COVID times when quantitative easing meant that everything moved together, asset classes or individual stocks or credits, um, there wasn't the differentiation. But I think with volatility, clients will be looking for funds and products which are flexible, which are able to take advantage of the volatility and also uh, have a bottom-up um, aspect as well. So I think from both a credit and an equity perspective, post QE, we're going to see much more differentiation within credit, given that we won't have the, the kind of tide of li- liquidity that keeps all boats afloat, as the, as the phrase goes. So for me, running a, a strategic bond fund, and I think, Matthew, you'll be the same, uh, we see it as a positive to be able to take advantage of those moves, use the flexibility, use the different asset classes that we can access and also use our kind of bottom-up expertise as well. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for equities? Uh, I would agree with what Jamie said there in terms of volatility being a feature and being a real advantage for us in equities. We're seeing big moves with equity markets being driven by bond markets. Uh, And when we see these big moves where these big clusters of stocks move together, then it will be the case that there are some stocks that are moving for the wrong reasons in terms of the fundamentals of that business. You remember equities are companies at the end of the day, they're driven by whatever is driving that particular company, be it a particular consumer good or healthcare or technology or some financial service. And it's really finding the pockets where yeah, the shares are moving different from the fundamentals. And there's lots of opportunity. There's lots of themes happening You know, in healthcare. Uh, there's paradigm shifts happening in healthcare that are completely separate to, to what's happening in the bond market and that's helping some stocks it's not helping other stocks some stocks are being priced for it to not help when actually it's not going to have an impact and therein lies the opportunity for us yeah i think investors will increasingly find opportunities in these places okay now last but not least it is a year that will bring many elections um, not least in the us and possibly the uk Louise, how much do investors consider political elections within their investment decisions and Are there any particular areas of concern or opportunity on the back of this? My experience is that elections are incredibly difficult to invest of ahead of the event. Even if you knew what the outcome was going to be, how the market is going to react to that is also very difficult to foresee. So I think there will always be people who try to second guess what's going to happen. But I think personally, that's a bit of a fool's errand and the best plan of action as an investor is to be prepared for different outcomes and to be adaptable. So if the outcome is something which is surprising, that you can take any actions that you see necessary at the time. But I think investing differently ahead of an election is a dangerous game because, yeah, as I said, the outcomes can be so unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And in terms of opportunities or concerns, it's just not worth worrying about. I think it's good to be aware. And, you know, there can be some various different things that happen. There can be the case that some investments get put on hold ahead of an election uh, due to the uncertain outlook in in some sectors rather than others. It can be the case that spending can be actually greater ahead of elections as, you know, different parties are trying to show favourable things ahead of the time. But uh, I don't think these are particularly dominant forces. So I think actually investing on the back of that isn't probably the best plan of attack. And I think really just focusing again, it sounds a bit repetitive, but focusing on the company fundamentals for most of the companies, the outcome of of the election isn't really going to make any difference. And if the share prices move for whatever reason, or whatever the outcome is, then that could be an opportunity to take advantage of that volatility. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
another, another point yeah. on the elections is that you've got to be very global in your mindset and you can't be too kind of domestically focused and, and read domestic news. So Trump is a classic case where, as you said, if people had you know predicted Trump would win, you would not predicted the massive rally. So, you know, almost 50% of the population in the US vote for Trump. Many people outside the US may not like him and what he stands for and what some of the things he says, but a lot of people in the US like him and generally Republicans. The market seemed to like Republicans more than they do Democrats. So, you know, the domestic news will say that Trump does horrible things, but actually many people in the US actually will vote for him. At the moment, he's probably favourite to win. I still don't know what the market will do as a result. So I think it's very, very difficult. But I think that's the global mindset is, is very important to kind of keep kind of going, thinking about when you're investing. Mm-hmm. So do you think that elections are worth worrying about for investors? They are in the bond, the bond market probably actually more than in the equity market because as, as Louis said, you know, the fundamentals of companies will go through but in the bond markets, particularly government bonds, we're definitely looking at where kind of the, the governments have the ability to spend money to bribe voters basically means that you should tend to underweight or go short those government bonds because and we're seeing it in the UK where you know the, the Conservative government has started to um, you know, do some, some more fiscal spending, you know, and, and they're obviously putting pressure on on Labour and some of their green plans, etc. Um, and you can see it also in the even the US with the Republicans controlling Congress is that they are, there's talk now about additional tax cuts in the in the US as well. So you, you should start to worry about government bonds um, with big big fiscal slippage because we've seen in the past that can be inflationary. It can be one of the things that stops the disinflation, you know, trend that we have seen so far. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jamie, final word. I agree with a lot of what Matthew said about the political situation and, and how it affects bond markets. I think also there's a there's a time frame where people start to concern themselves about elections. And for the US, it's probably the second half of this year rather than now. So coming into the second half of the year, we'll probably have to look at it more. But ultimately, as Louise said, you want to look through the elections and invest for the, the longer term. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Great. Well, it promises to be an eventful year for sure. And I look forward to... Um, finding out what happens <laughs> at the end of it. Thank you very much for being here today. It's great to um, talk to you, great to hear your views. And thank you for listening. Tune in again next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.